Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll just be looking at the greeting this morning. In his 2010 article titled America, Land of Loners, Daniel Axt makes several helpful points about trying to encourage people to develop deeper, more meaningful friendships. How many close social contacts do you think the average American has? The answer is four, but of those four, half of them are only friends. The other half are parents, children, spouses, it's, it's immediate family members. So technically, only two that are truly in that friend-only category. It's disappointing. Acts points out four barriers that typically prevent us from forming and maintaining friendships. And of course, the list could go on, but he, he mentions several. He says time is one. Right? We create a busyness so that we can feel important and mask any lack of meaningful relationships. And we say we don't have time for that. Uh, secondly, place. Oftentimes we prioritize career or location, maybe climate, over deep relationships that we've built. Uh, third, the impact of divorce. Um, when someone goes through a divorce, it divides more than just the couple. Oftentimes the friends find themselves having to pick a side and they lose, one of, uh, they lose the partner in their friendship. And then lastly, he mentions this reverence that we have in America for self-sufficiency, right? this independent spirit. We want to do everything on our own. Then he concludes the article with several advantages of friendship. He says it can moderate behavior, that friends help us establish and maintain norms of conduct. Uh, it can prolong your life. Those with healthy friendships live longer. And he concludes by saying that lonely people do have a harder time concentrating. They're more likely to divorce and to get into more conflict with neighbors and coworkers. Well, Philippians is one of the most important sources for understanding what Christian friendship should look like. Christian fellowship is about forming the kinds of bonds that will increase our enjoyment of this life and our resolve to persevere to the life to come. And we see both of those themes abundantly in the book of Philippians, surrounding this idea of fellowship. Philippians is, is not just about this uh, fellowship that we enjoy after the worship service as we're dismissed and we go into the fellowship hall, right? Labeling it fellowship hall doesn't mean that we're experiencing all the depths of fellowship that is meant by that word in scripture. The idea of koinonia, right? there's a true and a, and a deep love and affection for one another that is expressed in that word. And while we can start that in our fellowship after the worship service, that's just the beginning, right? It needs to go beyond that, where we really care for each other, bear each other's burdens, lift one another up throughout the week, recognize what people are going through. Notice those who are isolated and lonely, those who are frustrated. So isolation and loneliness are bad. 
for our spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being. That's pretty much recognized universally. But if friendships are so good for us, why are we so bad at developing them and maintaining them? That's what I want to focus on this morning as we consider this opening greeting and sort of set the context for the book of Philippians. This really is the groundwork for the rest of the letter as we consider uh, who the author is and also the, the saints to which he's writing. So before we read this greeting, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again to gather together to sit under your word. Lord, all of us need to hear this. We all need to be challenged and exhorted to deepen our affection for one another in this context, but even beyond it, Lord, with other Christian friends, that we would develop those deep, lasting friendships where we can bear our souls to each other and be completely vulnerable and honest. Lord, that's not something we naturally are inclined to do. We want to, you know, we, we distrust one another naturally. We think people will use whatever we share against us or gossip it and share it around without our permission. And Lord, we take a risk when we attempt to develop deeper and lasting friendships, Lord, but help us to do that. Help us to take that risk, recognizing that you are with us and that you've called us to this and that you will never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, in light of the friendship, the true friend that we have in Christ, and made embolden us to build and deepen our friendships with one another. We recognize that that is why you've given us the church, to equip us for all the members to do that work of ministry, of serving and being your hands and feet uh, for one another and in this world. So Lord, we thank you for this letter of Philippians that reminds us of these things, that, that our circumstances do not determine the joy that you've given us in Christ. And so may our hearts turn to him now. In his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, in our opening point, what we'll see in the first half of verse 1 is that Paul is writing from prison. We don't actually get that from verse 1. We see it later on. But I want us to consider the context in which he begins this letter. He's, he's writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. But notice the first thing that stands out to anyone who's familiar with Paul's letters. He's written 13 epistles in the New Testament. Um, he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The only other letter in which he doesn't reference his apostolic authority is Thessalonians. Why would that be? Well, these are two places that had a very loving, uh, affectionate relationship with the apostle. And so it seems evident that they're, they're either lacked enemies in the midst, right, opponents of Paul in the midst of these congregations, or the affection for him was so overwhelming that that is what he thought of as he wrote to them. 
right? That he, he, he recognized that friendship and that love. And so they already respected his role in the church. He did not have to defend his authority to them. Instead, he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that Timothy is the co-author with Paul. The, throughout the letter, he's, he speaks in the first person singular. He doesn't say, we write to you these things. He's saying, I. But he's with Timothy, and he recognizes his friendship and his companion who's been with him for, throughout his missionary journeys. And so he, uh, and also Timothy had an affectionate relationship with the church in Philippi as well. So the term speaks of their utter commitment as servants of Christ, their utter commitment to him. They're completely at their master's disposal. The word doulos is bondservant or slave. They're committed to serving as well the church, right? Because they are servants of Christ, they are also servant leaders in the church, and that idea, that concept, uh, maybe it's been softened over the years. I don't think it should be. Servant leadership should not be a bad word. It's not, it's not a, uh, it should not imply soft leadership. It's self-sacrificial leadership that, that Paul has in mind here. And so we also know that Paul was writing from, from prison. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's using his imprisonment to spread the kingdom to share the gospel. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So even those who are not in prison with him, brothers have heard about his, his impact among the imperial guard, and they too have been emboldened to share the gospel out in the community. And so he's encouraged by these things. But obviously we recognize there that he is in prison. And later on in verse 19, we see that it's a, it's a um, distressing matter. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So death at least is an option or a possibility at this point. But he is encouraged. He's, he's got an expectant hope that he will be released, that he'll be able to continue his ministry. And so because of that, we, we tend to think that Philippians was written in, in an early imprisonment in Rome. And if you compare it to his last letter, uh, which was written to Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, you get a very different uh, you don't have the optimism that we just read in Philippians of his, of his release and his hope. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who, love, who have loved his appearing. So there you see him really resolved to 
end his days uh, faithful to the Lord, but he's, he's not as confident there as he is uh, in his letter to Philippians, uh, to the Philippians. So this is the context, right? It's important to keep that in mind as we will repeatedly hear uh, the words like joy and rejoicing. It's, it, those two words and, and, and uh, different variations of them occur 16 times in this short letter. Four chapters, the, the idea of joy and rejoicing occurs 16 times. So we need to know that he's not simply spouting shallow platitudes to Christians in Philippi. His encouragement comes from a place that is firmly grounded and established through decades of hardship. And it's hardship that he was still in the midst of enduring. Paul had overcome his circumstances in order to rejoice in God's blessings. That's the reality. He was in prison and yet he was joyful. In his sermon on this verse, Martin Lloyd-Jones connects Paul's imprisonment to all of us. He says, sooner or later in life, we all meet untoward circumstances. We find ourselves in some sort of prison. It may be a sick bed or a hospital. It may be an accident. It may be grief or sorrow. Something puts us there. We are in that prison and we cannot avoid it. The important thing for us is to know before we get there the secret of how to overcome it. How to have this joy in the Lord in spite of our circumstances. How to rise above them all. How to conquer and be supreme over them. We need to know this if only for our own peace and joy. Really that's what Lloyd-Jones' commentaries are titled on his, um, his commentaries on Philippians 1 is a life of joy, and Philippians 3 through 4 is a life of peace. So his sermon series was in Philippians, a life of joy, or a life of peace and joy. Well, many of you feel like 2020 was a prison. And unfortunately, as we consider what lies ahead in 2021, we're not all that confident that it's going to change, that it's going to be any improvement. You know, likely we're looking at several challenging years to come. But Paul wants to teach us the secret of overcoming our trials right, with this deep-seated joy and peace that can only come from God. So one of the reasons that we struggle to have genuine friends is the same reason that we struggle in our suffering Namely, because we focus on ourselves and our own circumstances more than the needs of others. In Philippians, Paul models this self-sacrificial service of others, and he does it from prison. So your circumstances do not exempt you from this implication. You're not Paul or Timothy, but you do experience prisons of your own. And oftentimes God has placed you in that season precisely for the purpose of using you for more powerful service. And the motivation for this service is the example of Christ. We'll see that in Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 5 through 11. But because we are united to Christ, we will inevitably feel compelled to love others like he loves. 
In fact, it's proper to see ourselves as the vessel through which Christ continues to love and serve others. We're not empty and lifeless, but our strength is supplied from God. And so we become servants of Christ because he became a servant for us. Christ laid down his life in order to provide us with salvation. And so along with that redemption comes this inward work of the Holy Spirit who transforms our selfishness into a selflessness. We can begin to focus on the needs and the hurts of others and bear those burdens with them. So serving and humility are essential aspects of meaningful friendship. So think about that for a minute. Why would that be? All right, in our pride, we seek to save face. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to let people in. But in close friendships, we have to let our guard down. We have to be honest to let people know the pain that we're enduring. And in that, we're free to actually be ourselves. We aren't afraid of them misunderstanding us or taking advantage of the information they now have. And so it's important to keep in mind the context from which Paul is writing. But we also need to learn about the context of his recipients. And so for that, we turn to point to writings to the Philippians, second half of verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So there's a lot packed into that idea. This, this reference to the Philippians and Paul's relationship with them. He refers to them as saints. And despite Catholic practice of canonizing only superior, religiously devout individuals, the New Testament repeatedly refers to all Christians as saints. Right? What makes someone a saint is not a particular kind of holiness— it's not a superior holiness. It's not that person who's arrived at a, at a greater level of holiness, but it's the fact that they are in Christ. So even the least among us, is in, if he's in Christ, he is a saint. A saint is literally someone who has been set apart. And so God has set them apart in his son. This is one of Paul's chief phrases. In Christ, it occurs uh, in his letters, in all of his letters, more frequently than any other combination of words. Understanding our union with Christ is critical for maintaining that accurate perspective of salvation. Understanding our union with Christ is really the foundation of every other aspect or every other element of that order of salvation that we oftentimes consider. So Paul mentions these overseers and deacons as well. He points them out specifically. That term overseer is used in scripture interchangeably with elder. Some have tried to delineate different roles from the, of the bishop, right, which, is, uh, which is the, you know, the Greek word is episkopos, which is translated uh, bishop or overseer. Uh, but then uh, presbyteros is elder. And so there are two different words, 
but they're used interchangeably so that the same group of people who are referenced as overseers are also later on in Acts 20, for instance, referenced as elders, the same group. Okay, so they're just very, they may be different functions that the elders uh, pursue, right? Their function is to oversee the flock and their elder is their status or their authority. That, that might be the case, but the point is to recognize that they are the same role, they're the same office in the church. The other office is deacon, which literally means uh, serving uh, at the table. It's like a, a waiter or a waitress. Um, and it reminds us of really that group of men who were ordained to serve the widow's tables in Acts chapter 6. They really function as deacons in that passage, even though they're not called deacons there. We view that as that first ordination of the office of deacons. And here we see in Philippians that it's already being implemented in the churches, that there is a leadership that's given to the church of ordained elders and deacons. And so the question is, why are they singled out here? Well, one, Paul wants to recognize their service alongside Paul and Timothy. And these are servants in the church to be recognized for their role. But I think he's also calling for their special attention. And some of you here are already in these roles of elder and deacon. Others of you are being trained for that. And so whenever you hear this phrase in scripture, it should, it should pique your interest. He's drawing your attention to this. He recognizes that you have the added responsibility of providing for the flock that is gathered here. You have that added responsibility to carry out the exhortations that he has given us in this letter. And so you, in particular, should pay attention to this letter. I think it's also helpful for us to, to recognize how this church began. Uh, to recognize how the gospel came to Philippi. And it happened in, on Paul's second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. If you want, you can turn there, but I'm, I'm not going to necess- necessarily read uh, the passages, but we'll be getting an overview of what was taking place. And maybe you can read it more thoroughly later on this week. But Acts 16 tells the story of the Philippian church, the founding of this Philippian church. By the time this band of four missionary brothers arrives at Philippi, it's already a historic city, named after Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. He annexed the region to mine it for precious metals. Later on in uh, 167 BC, Rome conquered Macedonia and then divided the regions under various administrations. And several other important events in history had already happened so that this region, this area, was was recognized for its historic significance. And so Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke came to the Roman colony of Philippi after walking 12 miles from the port in Neapolis. Now, we know Paul and Silas and Timothy were together, And we assume Luke has joined them because in Acts chapter 16, verses 8 through 10, you see this transition uh, from second person plural to third person plural. From saying them and they to we and us. And we know that the author of Acts is Luke. And so we believe Luke has joined them at this point. 
It says in verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia to help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The only time you see that uh, third-person plural that we reference Sorry, second person plural, first person plural, first person plural. Man, my grammar, I need to work on that. First person is singular, uh, yeah, we. First person plural is we. So, uh, yes, we, he, the only time you see that reference to we is in, um, is in Philippi. And, and some speculate that, that Luke was left behind there. And Luke is actually the one gathering the church together and overseeing. Uh, the work that's taking place there, you'll, you'll uh, see him go back into third person, plural, they, and he goes back to we in chapter 20. And, and where are they at that point? Back in Philippi. So it's interesting to, to note that. Um, so anyways, by, Paul and Timothy are together, and, and they are, have arrived in Philippi because of this call, this vision that Paul has received. Um, and they go there then to spread the gospel. And their journey to Philippi began as this unexpected call because they had been hindered by the Holy Spirit from going to Asia. They had intended to share the gospel in Asia, but they couldn't go there. They were prevented. It doesn't explain how, other than that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going. And so they ended up going to Philippi. Now, typically, Paul went into the synagogue as soon as he entered town. You see this multiple times in the book of Acts. Chapter 9, 13, and 14. He enters into a synagogue, and he's oftentimes given the opportunity to proclaim Christ as the Messiah. And then after that, he goes out into the marketplace and begins to evangelize to the culture, the community. But apparently that's not available here. The assumption is that there were not enough Jewish men in order to form a synagogue here in Philippi. And so there must have been a very small number of Jewish men, less than 10 in this region, But they end up seeing a group of women who had gone to pray at the river. We see that in verse 13. Lydia's heart is open to receive the gospel. And after she and her household were baptized, she invited the group uh, of missionaries into her home. This is a significant aspect that we focused on whenever we were reading through the book of Acts. This this connection between those who were newly and freshly converted to a gospel, you know, from the gospel proclamation to relationship with Christ, they oftentimes opened their home to the missionaries. They, they showed hospitality. And so there's this link between our hospitable nature and, and the, the impact of the gospel in our lives. And so she has these missionaries in her home and her, her whole family is is baptized now later on we read of this demon-possessed slave girl who begins to follow this missionary band around shouting these men are servants of the most high god who proclaim to you the way of salvation read that in verse 17 this went on for several days and obviously it it carried a mocking tone because it said we read that it it was annoying to paul and so he ends up casting out the spirit he exercises the demon and so we can assume many assume that this girl 
also would have joined the church after she was healed. But the owners of the slave girl become enraged. They're furious and they, they seize and drag Paul and Silas before the authorities. They are stripped and beaten and thrown into prison. And then while in prison, Paul and Silas lead the other prisoners in a hymn sing. They begin singing to one another. And while they're singing, an earthquake opens all of the prison doors, unshackles the prisoners, and when the, the jailer awakens and recognizes that the doors have been opened, he assumes they've all escaped, and Paul has to call out to him because he's about to kill himself. He grabs his sword, ready to kill himself, knowing that he would have been executed for allowing the prisoners to escape. And he calls out to him, saying, no, that we're all here. It remained among them. They continued to worship God, even though he had set them free. And so the Spirit convicts this jailer's heart. He says, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household with you. And that very hour, this happened at midnight, that very hour, he and his household are baptized. It's a remarkable picture. So this is the beginning of the Philippian church. You have Lydia's family, Lydia's household, some other women who were praying by the river with Lydia, possibly uh, would have joined, although it only focuses on Lydia. You have the healed slave girl, and then you have the jailer's family. And we know that Paul returned to visit and encourage the Philippians on at least two more occasions, and and in Philippians, we'll see other names mentioned who have begun to gather with this church. So it's, it's a growing community of saints here in Philippi. But Paul builds in his love for them as he encourages them. He comes back in Acts chapter 20, as I mentioned already. We see an, uh, another reference to him visiting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. So he loved this community, and they reciprocated that affection for him. We'll look at that when we get to verses 3 through 8 in this thanksgiving that follows the greeting, and again in chapter 4. So the letter bears witness to this mutual appreciation that they have for one another. Now that doesn't mean they didn't have their issues. The church obviously did, and Paul's not afraid to address them. He will. But his tone throughout the letter is full of affection for these beloved saints. If you think about how we develop friendships. I think we naturally are inclined to gravitate to people who are a lot like us. We like to be around people who act and think like we do. But as God builds his church here in Fresno, we find ourselves belonging to a community of people with diverse backgrounds, different occupations, different influences, different appreciations, so that the unity of the Christian community would look like an anomaly on paper. Apart from Christ, we often have very little in common, and that distinctiveness is what bolsters our unity, according to Paul. Wherever we discover disparities, we ought to marvel that God has brought us together. Diversity magnifies what unites us. And so when people say, what in the world do they have in common, the appropriate answer is Christ. 
We belong to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says the Christian lives in two different orders of reality at the same time. We belong to Christ. As Paul will later say, our citizenship is in heaven, according to chapter 3, verse 20, not here on earth. And yet for the moment, we live in a sinful environment at Philippi or London or Atlanta, or we can say Fresno or Clovis. So here we are called to live as resident aliens. We live with our feet planted on earth, with our hearts and our citizenship in heaven. And frankly, that's not an easy predicament to find ourselves in. And so God has given us a community that we desperately need to navigate our way through this present age. And so much Meaning is really packed into this first verse. Paul's friendship with Timothy and their partnership with the church is based upon their calling as servants of Christ. Their commitment to follow the Lord's leading brought them to Philippi more than a decade prior. And all of the correspondence that they've enjoyed, whether it be in person or through companions sent back and forth between them, it brings to mind this relationship all represented in these opening words, right? They're reminded of this rich history of gospel partnership that they've had. Building a a strong community can feel like an impossibility because we overemphasize our present challenges and underemphasize this rich history that we have. So don't forget all that you've been through together. Address your present challenges after appreciating that heritage. You'll not overcome, think about this in in the immediate family. You're not going to overcome family conflicts simply by analyzing the present circumstances, the present condition. If you tell your wife, husbands, if you tell her, actually, that's not what happened, dot, 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 and you, you use that kind of phrase without ever reflecting on the big picture of your relationship, you're liable to make mountains out of molehills, right? And so analysis needs to occur when, within the context of those covenant reminders, right? The reminder that I, I love you, that I'm for you, that we will get through this together, that we've been through much, so much already, all, right, all of this requires a number of assumptions, really, that we'll find in Philippians. Chapter 1, we see a recognition of that commitment to one another, Chapter 2, we'll see this need for humility. In chapter, uh, chapter 3, we'll see an awareness, a recognition of the needs. And then chapter 4 is this mindset shift. We'll begin to focus on things that are lovely and pure and good, rather than all of the problems and trials. Right, gratitude places us in a proper angle from which we can view any conflict. And so if we lack a gratitude for the history that we enjoy together, then we will grow indifferent about each other's needs. A community that's filled with indifference toward one another will not be capable of outlasting even the lightest amount of persecution from the world. However, just simply rehearsing a chronology of events in your mind is not going to magically resolve all of the tension 
that is built by indifference. The process must ultimately remind us of all that God has done in and through us. Right? It points us to the central figure of every God-honoring relationship so that we begin to see that he who began a good work in you or in us will bring it to completion, as we'll read in chapter 1, verse 6. And so I pray that the Lord would continue to knit our hearts together into a loving community as we center our lives around our union with Christ. Right? That union with him will manifest itself in sacrificial service to one another. And so we see he's writing from prison. He's writing to the Philippians. And then the third point was going to be writing with a purpose. But we'll have to stop here and look at that next week. But we've seen the themes of gospel and community this morning. And they find their beginning in a, a much larger story that traces the history of God's covenant community and so we can say that to build a community is to create a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And unfortunately, when we enter into communities like this, oftentimes our personal stories are assumed or unknown. Maybe we're timid to share them or we think they're irrelevant. And many of us come to the church in the middle of our own story and we're reluctant to share it because we think no one wants to hear it. And unfortunately, that might even be true. But friendships begin with the discovery of one another's story. Right? How do you introduce yourself to someone? You, you find out who they are, what they do, where they've been, where they're from. But you search for some kind of connection to your own story. And so if I could summarize my point this morning, it would be this. Believers experience genuine fellowship because they are united to Christ and then mutually committed to his gospel. And so first, I would say that implies that we have a true understanding of the gospel. We know the gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel that counters the bad news of our sinfulness. Right? We're not born as saints, but sinners. We're not born in Christ, but separated from him. And yet, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Right? And so, Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This, not your, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So that's the gospel that sinners, that is the center of this Christian community. But the second point I would want to say is that the body of Christ, while it's centered on the gospel, it's because of the gospel that our relationships will deepen as we learn about the work of Christ in one another's lives. And so we ought to delight to share our testimony of God's redeeming work, knowing that God gets the glory for building such a diverse community of saints. And that's what we'll see happening throughout the letter of Philippians. Paul sharing his circumstances, knowing about their circumstances, and then encouraging them in them, right? And recognizing that they can have hope in the midst of their trials and circumstances. And so let us begin to share our testimonies with one another giving all glory to God for that work that he has done in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us, and that you've given us a community in which we can belong to a broader and a bigger story that you are accomplishing. Lord, you are building this church. You are building your church throughout this world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Lord, we're thankful that you've called us, that you've drawn us in, and that you've given us brothers and sisters in Christ to build us up, equip us, and work alongside us as partners in gospel ministry in this community, in this city, and in our places of work. Lord, wherever we go, Lord, we recognize that you are with us and that you are, that you've also brought alongside us companions, friends. Lord, help us to consider one another in, in that deeper sense. That if someone were to do a survey of Grace Clovis, we wouldn't simply have four friends. But that we would recognize many, many more whom we trust, with whom we've been able to pour our hearts out to. Lord, only, only your spirit can provide that kind of community, that kind of affection and commitment to one another. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to do that work. Do it in our own hearts first, that we would begin to turn away from our circumstances, that we wouldn't always just focus on ourselves, or think about the challenges that we face, but begin to notice and recognize the needs of others and by your spirit to provide help, to be your hands and feet. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.